This is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. who has done more good, in my opinion, for medical freedom, for the environment, and so many other causes, but near and dear to my heart is medical freedom, Bobby Kennedy. Thanks for having me, Robin. What we're talking about today that I'm really excited about, everybody here needs to be part of putting this book on the New York Times bestseller list by ordering yours today. When we're talking about this, it hasn't even launched yet. You wrote a book called The Real Anthony Fauci. And what's your subtitle? It's Bill Gates, Big Pharma, and the Global War on Public Health and Democracy. Okay, so I heard you talk about this. Oh, the, 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 title, the title is, if you want to order it, is the real Tony Fauci, the real Anthony Fauci. And I, I want to say this at the beginning, Robin, that I would urge people to order it. 100% of my profits are going to back to Children's Health Defense. But the objective of getting this onto the bestseller list is really a community a movement wide objective. It's something that will help all of us if this happens. If we can force this book, this you know, very, very provocative expose of who Tony Fauci really is onto the Amazon bestseller list. So a lot of people don't like to use Amazon, but I would urge you to make an exception now. We need to get about 10,000 pre-orders in order to get it number one on the Amazon list. And I think we have maybe 5,000 at this time. So the more people who can go there, order these for your Christmas present, order them for your friends. If you're holding them when I meet you at a rally, I'm happy to sign as many as, as you want, but it's two ways to support the movement. One is the profits are all going to CHD, to Children's Health Defense, us just getting this onto the bestseller list is a way to break the censorship, a way to tell people we are out there, we have something important to say, we have a narrative that is true, that is substantial, that is sourced, and that people are taking seriously and that they need to take seriously. So please order the book, The Real Tony Fauci, do your part for the movement. And Robin, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I donate a couple hundred bucks a month to Children's Health Defense Fund. And you guys, if you can afford to and you're not donating on a monthly basis, that and the ICANN network, they're out there fighting this battle for us. So talk to us about this book, The Real Anthony Fauci. Can you tell us a little bit about the role of Anthony Fauci? Tony Fauci has played a key role in, in the, the pharmaceutical, what we call agency capture, which is the pharmaceutical industry's coup d'etat against democracy. His agency is one of several agencies, 24 agencies at HHS that have been subject to what we're calling industry capture. That is the agency becomes the sock puppet for the industry that it's supposed to regulate. And this is a, it's a dynamic that happens with almost every regulatory agency. But with the public health agencies, we see agency capture on steroids. And that's because the agency is really part of the industry. CDC, about 45% of CDC's budget comes from buying and, and selling or distributing vaccines. So it is the biggest vaccine distributor in the country. The CDC owns at least 58 patents on vaccines and it makes royalties from the vaccines that it recommends, which means mandates. 
NIH and and NIAID, which is Tony Fauci's agency, also own royalties on pharmaceutical products, including vaccines, and they make or on patent rights, margin rights on those, and they they make royalties. FDA gets half of its budget from the pharmaceutical industry. And so these are no longer regulators. It's really a polite fiction to say that NIH does public health. It does not do public health. It does pharmaceutical promotion. And Tony Fauci has turned his agency into the leading incubator of pharmaceutical product. Tony Fauci has a $6.1 billion budget and NIAID. He gets another $1.6 billion from the military, basically, because he was able to co-opt after the anthrax attacks. There was huge amounts of money started pouring, pouring into the biosecurity agenda. And he was able to capture a large part of those sums by representing NIAID as a bioweapons, as what they call dual use, which is where we are, we are saying that we are making these products, these gain-of-function studies in order to find new vaccines and new defenses to biological attacks, but they are also, by the way, very useful if we want to turn around and use them as bioweapons. Well, the intelligence agencies, DARPA, BARDA, the Pentagon funding agencies, and the intelligence agencies, which really are represented here by USAID, which is a CIA front. And if you look at where Peter Daszak was getting his money, he was the man, the British bioweapons expert and zoologist who Tony Fauci was laundering the money to, the $7 million that Tony Fauci used to end run to subvert the Obama moratorium on gain of function studies, which Obama put a moratorium in 2014. 300 scientists wrote Obama and told him, you got to stop Tony Fauci from doing these studies. He closed down some of his studies. He continued doing the most dangerous ones here in the United States with Ralph Barrick at UNC. Uh, he moved the bulk of his research offshore to China, where President Obama and the nosy White House busybodies could not keep an eye on what he was doing. And in order to conceal what he was doing, he laundered the money through Peter Daszak. Well, Peter Daszak was also getting around $50 million a year from USAID to do bioweapons research you know, which they called, again, vaccine research, but it was actually, he was collecting animals from all over the world that had viruses, that hosted viruses that could potentially be manipulated to infect human beings and be transformed into bioweapons. You know, that's part of this story. That's where the reason that Tony Fauci gets this $1.6 billion a year, and one of the reasons that he is obsessed with gain of function, because his budget, all that money he's getting from the, from the military, that's how he's justifying it. But it gives him a total of $7.6 billion budget, and Congress created that agency to study the etiology of infectious and allergic diseases and autoimmune diseases, does Tony Fauci do any of that? No. The answer is he does not. In fact, he blocks people, blocks scientists all over the world from investigating the etiology of infectious disease.
He came to that agency in 1968. That year, the rate of infectious disease among Americans was 6% of, of chronic disease among Americans was 6%. By chronic disease, I mean three categories of disease, neurodevelopmental disease, ADD, ADHD, speech delay, tics, Tourette's syndrome, narcolepsy, ASD, autism. Secondly, autoimmune diseases, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile diabetes, and a hundred others. And three, allergic diseases, peanut allergies, eczema, anaphylaxis, asthma. When I was a boy, with the exception of asthma, no, I knew no child who had any of those diseases. Tony Fauci came in, only 6% of Americans suffered those kind of diseases. Today, it's 54%. So he has failed upward. His job was to make sure that we didn't get those diseases. But he, of course, the reason he's lasted 50 years in that agency, he is the, you know, he's the J. Edgar Hoover of, of public health. How did J. Edgar Hoover last in that agency? Uh, by having sweetheart relationships with mobsters and organized crime people and political connections. It was not by doing his job. And Tony Fauci has done an absolutely miserable job. Uh, he's an utter failure at protecting Americans against chronic disease and infectious disease, by the way. I mean, you look at what the United States record was during COVID. We had 1,600 people dead per million. You know what Finland had? About 44. You know what Cuba had? About 14. We had a thousand times the rate of death as Cuba. We had more than that. The African countries average about five or 10, one to 10 people per million. And so he gave us the one of the worst possible outcomes from COVID of any country in the world. And he's given us the highest today, the Fauci generation of children are the sickest generation in American history. Our nation is the sickest nation in the world from chronic disease. We use more pharmaceutical drugs than any other nation. We take about three times what other nations take. We pay the highest prices for them. He has not made America healthier. He has failed upward. As he told us why peanut allergies suddenly appeared in 1989, no. Why eczema suddenly appeared, while juvenile diabetes suddenly appeared, why rheumatoid arthritis went epidemic, all of these epidemics, where are they coming from? You know, there's no answer. And we know they have to be from environmental exposures because genes do not cause epidemics. They may provide a vulnerability, but you need an environmental toxin. And it's a pretty easy thing, pretty easy science to find out what that environmental toxin is because you need a, a toxin that became ubiquitous in 1989. There was now suddenly exposures to every demographic from Cubans in, in Miami to Inuit in Homer, Alaska that affects boys disproportionately to girls. That began in 1989. Okay, so... Reset for a quick second, because a lot of people who didn't know anything at all about the things that you've been studying and exposing for a couple decades now, or at least a decade, I believe, and half the people who listen are people that we're able to actually make aware. So they're upset about the fact that the media looks like it's just pharmaceutical marketing. And we've talked about the 1986 National Vaccine Injury and Compensation Act 
you are now talking about 19, a few years after that, when, when the, the pharmaceutical industry no longer had any legal liability whatsoever for its products in the category of vaccines. So what happened from 1986 to, you're saying 1989 was that turning point where now we would have gone so downhill. The reason I use 1989 is because Congress ordered EPA to study what year did the autism epidemic begin? And the EPA scientists came back and they said it's a red line, 1989. That was the change point. It happens that because the act was passed giving immunity from liability to vaccine companies that in 1986, they started gearing up and all these new vaccines were added around 1989. So there was three added in 86, actually. These trivalent uh, vaccines like MMR and the DTP, and the HIV vaccines, the hepatitis vaccines, extra doses were added all around 1989. You had this huge explosion. We went ultimately from the three vaccines I had as a kid to 72 that are doses that our children now get. And the big bulk of those began in 89. So you see a lot of these chronic diseases. And also, as you know, all of these chronic diseases, diabetes, arthritis, food allergies are all listed as side effects on virtually all the vaccines on their manufacturer's inserts. So we know the vaccines can cause them. But, you know, there's, it's not just the vaccines, Robin. There's a lot of other, our children are swimming around in a toxic soup, and there's a lot of other exposures that began around that same time. We had glyphosate, which became ubiquitous. We had the neonicotinoid pesticides, PFOAs, which are flame retardants. We had cell phones. You know, that began around the same time and a lot of Wi-Fi radiation, which we know is, is disruptive to the biome. We also had ultrasound, which happened around the exact same time. So there's a number of exposures. I, you know, there's a famous toxicologist called Phil Landrigan who did a paper on it and looked at the potential exposures. And I think he came up with 11, you know, 11 things that could have been. Well, it's pretty easy to figure that out if you got those, uh, that list of 11, you just go through them. There's a million ways to do the science to figure out which one of those are the culprits with each of those diseases. Has that science ever been done? No. Why Tony Fauci? How can he stop? All of the scientists, I'm doing those studies. Well, here's how. He controls the funding. Not only he controls that $7.6 billion, which he gives away every year to develop drugs with, He's not doing science with it. He's doing drug development. Congress told him to do the science, but he instead, and the way that he does that is, this is typical, it's not always the way it happens, but he has labs at NIH and he develops the molecule. So his people will put molecules into a Petri dish of coronavirus or hepatitis B or whatever, and they'll figure out what kills it. And he farms the molecule out to the colleges, to university, what they call PIs, principal investigators. These are powerhouse doctors at the leading medical universities in the country. And those guys are the, you know, the deans of the university, they're the chairmen of the department, and they're the ones who do clinical trials. They're very, very lucrative for the pharmaceutical industry. But they get it first, usually, and they will... Tony Fauci gives it to them and he'll give them two or $300 million. And he gives them typically, you know, the deal is we'll give you $15,000 per patient. You do the animal studies and then you do the human studies, phase two, phase one, phase two studies. 
And those studies will give you $15,000 a patient that you recruit to do your study, the place of both groups. Well, the university then skims off half of that. So now the university is dependent on Tony Fauci. And then at the end of the process, Tony Fauci, his agency and some of his favorite you know, minions will all get patent rights to that molecule. The PI, the researcher at the university will get patent rights and the university itself will get patent rights. And then when they get to phase three trial, they sell it to a pharmaceutical company, to Gilead, to Johnson & Johnson, to Merck, to Glaxo, uh, Wyeth or, or Pfizer, whatever. And then the company also gets their royalties, their patent rights. And so everybody is now tied into this system. And, you know, the Nicholas Wade, who did this article about the Wuhan lab, Nicholas Wade was the editor, I think, of Science and Nature magazine. He was the editor of the New York Times Science section for many, many years. And he did this really wonderful article about the Wuhan lab. And about, you know, that basically, if you read that article, you come out of it and you say, it was the first mainstream press article that said, this happened from the Wuhan lab. And he doesn't say that exactly, but he leads you through the step showing you all the places that it could have come from and why it couldn't have come from any place. He eliminates everything but the Wuhan lab. And then he shows all the evidence that it did come from the Wuhan lab. It's a devastating article. And he says in that article, how is it possible that all the virologists in the world who knew that early defenses in the Lancet and nature that were published that said this, this didn't come from Wuhan and all the mainstream press quoted those two articles. One of them was signed by 28 virologists, leading people in the field. Nicholas Wade goes through those two articles and said this science is not even science. It's just sophomoric baloney. And how could these 28 greatest virologists in the world sign on to this? You look at them, they're all PIs. And what Wade says at the end, he doesn't connect it to Tony Fauci's PIs, but he says all of the virologists are dependent on NIH for their money. He's buttering their bread. And so there was no merita. There was a code of silence that went through all of virology in which everybody knew and none of none of them spoke up. Yeah, so we've, he we've said seen... he said this is the end of virology as a profession because you know they're not going to be able when when people realize how this happened that you know the guy who was put in charge by two presidents of managing the pandemic was the guy who started the pandemic. And people realized that and that everybody, all the people in his field kept their mouths shut. When people realize that it's not just going to be the end of Tony Fauci and the end of any respect that people have for public health authorities, but the entire profession of virology is through because they all lied to protect their paycheck. Yeah, what's really interesting is seeing um, virologists and immunologists from around the world step up, and I could sit here and list them off, and what they seem to all have in common is that they're retired. They're retired, and or some of them have sold biotech companies to giant companies like Pfizer, and they're speaking up, Mike Yade and Dolores Cahill, 
come to mind. Knut Witkowski, um, you know, those are just the ones that are coming to the top of my mind. That Bhakti guy, I can't remember if that's his first or his last name, but they're all retired, which makes perfect sense. So, but does it stop it at Anthony Fauci? Because your research is so deep. And yet I have to ask, like, who's at the top of this? You mentioned Peter Dazak as the guy who I've never heard anybody say is a number as high as $100 million that he's been paid. But I, you know, the really bad guys, Peter Dazak, Ralph Barrick, um, I know you've talked, I know well, you talked well, in your book. Dazak was, was paid $7 million by Fauci, but he was getting his real money from the military because they were the ones who really wanted to do gain of function studies and they were laundering the money through him to keep their fingerprints off it. Cause they're, you know, they're doing it in foreign labs cause they knew they couldn't do it at Fort Detrick anymore. They couldn't do it at Galveston and they couldn't do it at those labs anymore because of the moratorium. So they were all sneaking around the white house and they were laundering the money through this, you know, really a sinister guy. And like many say, you know, he's like Tony Soprano. If you see Peter Daszak, he looks, like a mild mannered, very sweet, very reasonable guy, but it's like ebony, 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 what? I don't know anything. I, you know, he's like Porky Pig when they catch him with his, his pants down. It, it's really, uh, if you watch him, even there's 60 minutes where they got him, you know, he's lying. And he was doing something that was utterly reckless. Okay, so does the buck stop there? Is is Anthony Fauci as high as it goes? Because you know, a lot of us just we just want to know where this ends. Like, you know, a lot of us wonder if there's a handful of billionaire and trillionaire white guys who want the whole new world order who are telling Tony Fauci what to do. I mean, it was very strange to watch both Trump and Biden. He the, the man transcends presidencies. So I'm I'm totally with you on all of it. But does the buck really stop with? No, I don't think so. I think that there's clear evidence, and I have this in my book, that of deep involvement by the intelligence agencies and by the military and by, you know, other people, by the financial and the big financial institutions, et cetera. And if you look at these war games that they were doing, you know, there's about, I think there's nine of them that they did. Um, going back to like 1998 and all of those war games, they began with the intelligence community doing them and they all would model a pandemic. They did an anthrax pandemic, they did a small pox pandemic, and then they did a lot of, they did one flu pandemic and they did these war games with organized, very highly organized million dollar productions where they would bring in people who were powerful people, basically government and waiting and they would have them play act a pandemic. And the, in every case, the end point of the pandemic is totalitarian control of the society. So in every one of them, they do censorship. This is going back to 98. They do mass propaganda. They model masking, they model lockdown, they model economic collapse, they model social distancing to push, push people apart. And in the end, kind of a, a centralized government and a, and a very, very rigorous police state, surveillance state, military control. And the people who are involved are, are consistent throughout. It's the same group of people. Even the last one that Gates did in 201, he had intelligence people, including the former deputy director of the CIA. And then 
if you watch what happened to those people in event 201, event 201, where they modeled a coronavirus epidemic that killed 65 million people and how to do censorship of the social media, uh, mainstream media, mass propaganda, economic shutdown, et cetera. They modeled all that. Well, who were the people who were involved in it? They were the deputy director of the CIA and all of these other people. And by that time in October, the coronavirus was already circulating in Wuhan. So they did this at the very beginning of the pandemic. And they, the people in that room were almost all of them in one way or another was moved immediately into positions of power to manage the pandemic. The CIA Chief Admiral Haynes is now the head of the NSA in charge of coronavirus, the highest level official in the country took place, took part in Gates's war game. So from the beginning for, for 22 years, 23 years, they've been modeling how to turn a pandemic into totalitarian control. They've been doing that for 23 years. And the people who are involved in it, you know, a lot of times they have Congress people, senators, and if you look at them, they are the people who are oversight, have oversight authority over intelligence. Um, they have oversight authority over public health, and they have been involved in these, you know, they have participated as willing participants, and then they have key press figures. Bloom from Bloomberg, from Forbes, from you know, from the New York Times, from the Washington Post, which is owned by Jeff Bezos, you know, who's all involved in this. And of course, you know, uh, Gates owns a big chunk of Amazon, a big chunk of Apple, a big chunk of Facebook, a big chunk of Google, and they all of them also own vaccine companies. Google owns a vaccine company. Yeah, uh, Zuckerberg has a billion dollars in the vaccine space. And so they're all part of this, you know, I would call it a coterie or a cabal of very, very powerful people. And, and there's a lot of invisible people who are people from the military. And I go into a lot of that in my book and talk about the, the strong uh, presence of military and intelligence involvement in what they call the biosecurity agenda. I'll tell you what happened. You know, the rough chronology, Robin, the Soviet Union collapses in 1990, in 1988. And, you know, for, for 50 years, you know, when I on my birthday in 1960, just before my uncle took office, but on my birthday, January 17th, Eisenhower gives this famous speech where he says, the biggest threat to America is not the Soviets, it's the military industrial complex. That is what is going to overwhelm our uh, democracy and our culture and our values, et cetera. And, you know, my uncle spent three years fighting his own military and intelligence apparatus and keeping out of Vietnam, keeping combat troops out of Vietnam. As soon as he was killed, they got their way and they created the Vietnam War and became an American war. My father then ran against the war, was killed in that process. In 88, the Soviet Union collapses. And when the Soviet Union collapses, what did they tell us? They told us, okay, Cold War is over. You guys are going to get a peace dividend. You're going to all that money that we were spending on stealth bombers and B-17s, you know, billion dollar plane, billion dollar planes that cannot fly in the rain, the stealth bomber. Now that's going to be spent on schools and education and healthcare, infrastructure, roads, 
police, all of the things that are going to enrich America and enrich the American middle class. And did the peace dividend ever materialize? No, because there was a group of people, they're called the military industrial complex, who heard that word peace dividend and they said, holy cow, that's coming out of our pockets. That's our money that they're talking about spending on schools now. And so they needed another enemy. And in 1993, five years later, the first World Trade Center bombing happens. And from then on, the peace dividend money that was headed our way stopped dead in its tracks. And they said, well, now we've got an even worse enemy, terrorism. Uh, seven years after that, we have the, the second World Trade Center bombing. And then we become a national security state overnight. And Dick Cheney promises a long war that will last generations. Terrorism is a perfect enemy. Why? Because it's not going to let us down the way that the Soviet Union did by folding its tent and giving up because it's not a nation. It's a, it's a strategy and it's a strategy that will be here forever. So it had all these advantages. The problem with Islamic terrorism is that really it's hard to persuade people, even when, you know, you can do it for a couple of years and then people start yawning and saying, is a jihadist actually coming to my home in Dubuque? You know, I feel like that's not going to happen. Maybe they'll attack New York. And if you live in the Dubuque, maybe you don't care what happens in New York or L.A. So, you know, the rest of the country was getting bored with Islamic terrorism. And so then they figured out, well, you know, what can we really scare the hell out of people with? Something that will get into your house and kill you and your whole family instead of an Islamic terrorist, which... There are fewer people in the United States on average that die from lightning strikes than die from Islamic terrorism. You know, that's just a fact. Since 9-11, on average, year by year, more Americans are killed by lightning than Islamic. It's not a really good bugaboo to scare the hell out of people and get them to hand over the money and stop everything and just be filled with fear. But what, what can do that? Germs. And they knew that from the beginning. And that's why two weeks after 9-11, 10-4, there was an anthrax attack. And the anthrax attack was mailed to the U.S. Capitol. So it looked like, you know, okay, they're really threatening. And it was blamed on Saddam Hussein. And it was one of the reasons that we all got to go to war in Iraq against a guy who had nothing to do with the 9-11 attack because he had he was a bioweapon czar and he probably sent this to him. Well, it turned out when they completed the analysis, it was undeniable that the anthrax that was used in that attack came from the US military. It came from an army laboratory. We know that for a fact. The FBI had a suspect that almost certainly had nothing to do with it. A scientist at Fort Detrick named Ivans. They ruined his life and destroyed him and he killed himself. And they closed the investigation after that but it's clear there was a cover-up and that the person or people who actually sent that, who were associated with the U.S. military, were never caught and that the FBI did not do a thorough investigation. So from the beginning of 2001, the military and the intelligence apparatus already recognized that the real enemy was going to be biosecurity. That was the agenda that was going to keep them in the gravy, that was going to feed all the hogs at the trough, the military contractors, 
for generations. And they started really aggressively modeling it at that time. And they started building the infrastructure for the biosecurity agenda. And then in 2009, President Obama declared that biosecurity was now the spear tip of American foreign policy. So here's another advantage of biosecurity. During World War II, we signed the Atlantic Charter. People should understand what that is. The Atlantic Charter was one of the greatest accomplishments of American idealism. Franklin Roosevelt said to Winston Churchill, we are not going to support England in the war and we are not going to come in the war unless you sign this document. And what this document does is it describes what the world will look like after World War II when the Allies win. And the number one item on it is that all the European nations that had colonies in Africa and elsewhere have to get rid of them and let those people determine their own fates. Well, that was the biggest source of wealth for Europe. Churchill didn't want to do it, but he had to do it because it was the only way we would go into the war. And he signed the Atlantic Charter and all the European nations agreed to give back their colonies after the war. That and the nationalist movements, you know, that began in the 50s and 60s after World War II succeeded in disenfranchising all of those colonies. Well, when you have military presence in those colonies, it allowed your homegrown corporations to go into that country and exploit the natural resources, the people, free cheap labor, the agricultural products, the mineral products, the oil, the lumber, you now had that, it was, became the wealth of your country. So the colonialism and former colonialism, but we had a new, new kind of neo-colonialism where we went in and said, well, we're gonna go be in your country to help you fight communists, right? So we put military US replace Europe as a colonial power. By the time the, the Berlin Wall fell, we had 655 military bases in 100 nations around the world. And we said, well, okay, we're there. What we were really doing there, we were supporting any guy, any dictator who said he was anti-communist, who could show, prove his anti-communist bona fides by inviting in US corporations. Our presence there, our military presence gave, was the key our multinationals, to Pepsi, to Coke, to AT&T, to ExxonMobil, Texaco, all those companies to come in and exploit their resources. And so the anti-communism fight, which most of the time we weren't fighting communist, we weren't fighting Soviet-inspired communists, we were fighting national liberation movements who just wanted a fair shake. And we were supporting the worst dictators in the world, Saudi Arabia and elsewhere, and the deal was, if we kept them in power, they'd let our corporations exploit their resources. So when the Soviet Union is over, now we have to say, okay, we still need to be there to fight Islamic terrorism. But Islamic terrorism really is not a big issue in many countries, but disease is. And we could go in there to every country now in Africa and say, we, like we did with the communists, we need to fight it there so we don't have to fight it here. We need to kill Ebola in Nigeria so it doesn't come to Los Angeles. We need to kill Zika in Brazil so it doesn't come to New York or, or Florida. And it gives us an excuse 
for our intelligence agencies and our military agencies to keep those markets open for our big corporations. And so when you ask, you know, who is behind this, it's the same dynamic that's always been behind it. It's, you know, Alan Dulles, before he became the head of the CIA, was a lawyer for, for United Fruit and for the oil industry. And one of the first two things he did when he became CIA chief, he engineered a coup in Guatemala at United Fruit, his former client told him that they, you know, that they were getting nationalized down there and that we need to overthrow the government, who was a democratic government, Jacob Arben, is probably the greatest leader in Latin American history after Bolivar. We needed to get rid of him and United Fruit owned 80% of the arable land in Guatemala and kept the land, most of it fallow, to keep the price of labor low and the pipe price of bananas high and to keep Guatemala poor. And our Ben said, we're not gonna do that anymore. And Dulles's client was United Fruit, so we overthrew them. And then, you know, the next year or the year before, we overthrew, we installed the Shah of Iran when Prime Minister Mossadegh, one of the greatest democracy, the first democracy in the 4,000 year history of Iran, came in and thought America was his friend. He expelled the British because they tried to overthrow him. And then we overthrew him. So that because he was trying to nationalize the he's trying to get a better deal from the oil companies. So that it's the same impulse that has dictated American, you know, people can call it the deep state, you can call it whatever you want. It's this alliance between the intelligence agencies, the military, and big corporations. And you know, ultimately they call the shot. Listen, these public health agencies, they're all part of the military. You know, the NIH was part of the U.S. Navy. The CIA was part of the Army. It was the public health service. That's why they wear, they have military ranks, surgeon general, admiral, they wear uniform. The uh, NIH came from the, you know, ultimately the Navy and NIAID. And they're still quasi-military agencies and they still have a strong relationships with the military because the military, the, you know, the biggest killer, killer of the, the army and the Navy is disease, even during wartime. And so historically, public health of the soldiers was regarded, you know, whether it's the battle against malaria or yellow fever or gangrene or whatever, that was what these agencies were created to do. And they still have these strong military relationships. And so it's kind of a natural affiliation between them and all of these power brokers. And of course, Gates is right in the middle of all that. Gates and Welcome Trust, which is Jeremy Farrar, which is a name that everybody in America ought to know because he's one of the guys who engineered this whole catastrophe. So you've given us so much to think about. And I, I'm going to ask you one more question. And everybody should remember to go sign up to be a monthly donor for children's health defense. There aren't very many organizations that have the ability that will stay with it and they'll keep going out there and fighting the legal battles. But there's just really two organizations that I know of are constantly fighting these battles. It's Children's Health Defense Fund, which our own RFK Jr. is the head of, and then also the ICANN Network. And so stretch and give those two as much money as you can and for sure order the book, The Real Anthony Fauci, for sure, order some, order some for your friends and neighbors so you can give those out. Do we win this? And if so, I mean, awareness is great, but what do we need to do? What do we need to do to win this? I, I'm not going to predict whether, whether we win it or not. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that we win it. 
like you say in the beginning, our job is to fight it and to get up every morning and say, reporting for duty, sir. And um, I'm going to spend my day figuring out everything that I can do to take these people down. And, you know, ultimately, Robin, it's in God's hands, whether we prevail, you know, today, tomorrow, in my lifetime or, or your lifetime. The only thing I have control over in my life is this little tiny piece of real estate inside my own shoes. And, you know, I don't have any control over anything else. And, but I, I know what I'm going to do with that. And like you said, I'm going to die with my boots on fighting these people. I get up every day and think about what I'm supposed to be doing today to push the, you know, the rock up the hill. And whether I get there or not, or whether you know, my children get there or their children get there, or somebody's going to do it. But our job is to carry the baton for that little piece of track and, and hand it to the next person. And that's you know, also our consolation, which, is a, which oftentimes the only consolation we have and the only victory is a clean conscience and our personal integrity. But that's a big deal. That's really the only thing that's persistent or permanent in life anyway. Thank you so much for everything that you do for us, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Thank you very much, Robin. Thanks for what you do too.